Welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder. In Arnie Atkinson's backyard in Flower Mound, Texas, on a trip I'm doing out here. And last week, two weeks ago really, I interviewed Yale Kim. Now I'm interviewing Jung Kim. No relation. <laughs> in some way, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe if you go, go way back. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome. Thank to you. The podcast, my man. Thank you. So, first question: What you're smoking? Smoking Tatuaye Reserva Broadleaf, and then this is the one of the line uh, Havana Casadores. So, I would say this is one of my top three favorite cigars, I guess. So, just hard to find. That's all it is. Was the Broadleaf the one that you gave me? Two yeah. Ago? yeah two okay. Days, yeah. yeah, it's still in, it's in my humidor. Probably should have pulled it out and yeah, smoked Love it, for you smoked to try, with yeah. you. But nice. So. You're not from America. I'm not. <laughs> so, born in Korea, and don't ask me if I'm from North or South. But <laughs> that's an ongoing joke. But yeah, I uh, was born in Korea, South Korea, in Seoul, and then um, lived there until 91. So, I was 13 years old at the time. And then my dad decided to make the move, and then our family immigrated to Southern California back in 1991. So this What May, brought them here? I guess, I mean, most like any other people would be probably more opportunities. And then um, I think my dad somehow kind of wanted to get away too. And then um, another thing was that his older sister was living in New York already. She was living in New York since the 70s probably. And then she's been wanting him to come to America for the longest time. So she put in an invitation out, and I think in the 80s, my dad's like kind of thinking in and out of America, and I guess he was seeing more opportunities, and then and so that, that's kind of how he made his move. So yeah, so that was 91, kind of a lot of culture shock. I could imagine for a 13-year-old. Yeah, very, I mean, I was excited, because uh, I would say in the late 80s and maybe early 90s, even before I moved, like I was watching a lot of American stuff. Because, mm-hmm. and then, you know, WWF, and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we were talking about that earlier, but, you know, Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior and Demolition Man, like all kinds of people. So I was getting very excited. The Legion of Doom. Yeah. Hawking Animal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, but. I would say after about a couple months, when I started going to school, that I realized it's not what we see on TV. Yeah. Because in the media, we kind of portray this America in certain ways, but when you actually go to or come here, it's very different. So one of the experiences with that, it's just so funny. So about third day in school, so I started in middle school in eighth grade, and I was really into rollerblading at the time. So I'm like, I'm going to go to school with my rollerblade. So because on TV, you see all these people riding skateboards or roller skates or, you know, having a Walkman. Remember the Walkman mm-hmm. days? You know, chewing gums into class and things like that. That's what you see on TV. So I actually went to school in rollerblades. I rode my rollerblade to the school. And by the time I got very kind of close to the school, one of the friends I just met in school he looked at me and he goes like hey you can't write that at school I'm like why not he's like 
you just can't. <laughs> so, so I had to go to the payphone and call my mom, and then um, <laughs> I told my mom, I was like, can you bring me shoes? And it's like, why? Because technically, I guess you can't ride rollerblades in school. So she bought shoes, I changed it, and went to school. And um, yeah, that's so funny. So two days later, one of the other friends whom I just met, he found out I was riding a rollerblade, and he was riding a rollerblade too. So yeah. he basically told me, he's like, hey, we could ride a rollerblade to school together, and then we'll have our shoes in our backpack, where then we'll just change it, yeah. put, put our rollerblades in our locker, and then we could ride it back when we actually, when we're done with school. So that's kind of what I did. And then he actually became my best friend. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of a culture shock. And then meeting my best friends, kind yeah. of the type of thing. So. Yeah. So what kind of a kid were you growing up? Mm, I was wild, I think, when I was little, you know, just running around a lot of different places. But um, I would say in starting high school, I was a troublemaker. So the best friend... The, that I got to meet during Rollerblade, he became my best friend. We're also are not the best <laughs> friends to be around. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, back in the 90s, growing up in Southern California, there was a lot of stuff that was happening. And, um, you know, I picked up cigarettes when I was 14. I snuck out a lot. I started driving when I was 15. Yeah, picked up a lot of other substance as well. Mm -hmm. So I was a troublemaker. My mom was worried about me quite a bit. So it's amazing. Even um, I barely graduated high school. Mm. Kind of crazy story. So it's like um, I probably in our about sophomore year, I probably never went to school pretty much. I ditch every day. Like school and studying was just not my thing. So, and then I, that would, I had to go to another school for continuation school so to make, make up my credit in my junior year. And mm -hmm. then in senior year, I just really wanted to graduate. So I went back to my original school to get a uh, diploma. And I still remember the last quarter of my senior year, I had to beg two of my teachers to give me D so that I could actually get a credit to actually get a diploma for high school. So. Back in the 90s, I graduated in 96, so at the school that I went, you needed 220 units or credits in yeah. order for you to graduate. And then I just got 220 in order for me to graduate. So yeah, by grace of God, I graduated high school, so. What kind of home did you grow up in? Was it a Christian? No, my home? mom went to school, so she wasn't a believer until she got married because my grandma was a strong Methodist. So my dad sort of went to church because his mom was forcing him to go at a young age, but he never really was a, I would say, Christian. After my mom got married, because she married a Methodist family, she started going to church. So growing up at a very early age, I actually went to church every Sunday with my mom. Only reason it's because the church that I went to back in Korea, it was on the hill, I still remember. Going up on the hill, there was a little kind of a snack shop that they had. And then what Korean people sell, it's this uh, thing called a spicy rice cake. So it's like made out of rice cake, it has this little spicy sauce to it. And then I always love eating at that shop. Mm -hmm. So every Sunday, 
I would go to a church after church. I would always go to that place at this spicy rice cake, and that yeah. was my only way to go to church. And then once a week, I would always get that food. So that's kind of my memory, like actually going up in a church. So I don't feel like, I mean, I went to like you know kids camps and things like that, but I don't think I had a solid, I'd say, foundation growing up. And then when we immigrated to U.S., basically. I started going to church when I was in eighth grade, just because all of my friends were going. And then, then starting in freshman in high school, probably I stopped going to church. Probably, yeah, yeah. So more the other stuff that it's kind of considered bad now. Yeah, was more attracted to me at the time. Yeah, than going to church and praying yeah. or worshiping or whatever that is. So, yeah, yeah. So, what did you do after high school? After high school, I did go to community college, but it was one of those things I would enroll in class, and then, and then about a week later, I would drop out, take all the money, and then sell all the books, and just whatever. So, and then I would just keep one or two classes, and I did that for about a year or two. So I wasn't really studying much because, like I said, it was like yeah, school wasn't my thing at yeah. all. And then I really enjoyed playing golf when I was 18 or 19. So I played golf a lot back in when I was 18 and 19, probably every weekend. And then about when I was about 20, that's when my family kind of hit a financial crisis. So my dad filed a bankruptcy, both my parents. So since then I started working. So what were they do for work? So when we first immigrated, my dad actually owned a fish market. So in the 90s, he was in this you know, neighborhood where you're selling Louisiana style fish, pretty mm-hmm. much. A lot of black people, people fry fish on the weekends, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, quite a bit. So my dad did that for a little bit, for quite a year. And then and after that, he had some money that he was able to invest in a restaurant in Koreatown in LA, mm-hmm. which was uh, very known at the time. And then he did that for a couple of years. And then after that, he had some investment that he had, and he actually started a used car dealership out in Orange County, in Garden Grove. And then and that business tanked quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know about the business, he was just an investor. And then and a lot of people just kind of took advantage of him. And then he tried to save it. I think he might have put in about $400,000 to, wow. to save the business. Wow. I mean, cold cash, pretty much and then um, ended up closing down the business, which ended up filing a bankruptcy. And that really took a toll on our family. That's when I started working, my sister started working, and things like that, so. What kind of jobs did you have? A couple different ones. So I think when I started actually working in like 20 or so, I was actually working at a video store, mm-hmm. uh, like a blockbuster type of thing, but it was all privately owned. Yeah did that for a little bit and then I needed a little more cash so I went to this closed door pharmacy where this pharmacy was actually delivering medication to nursing home mm-hmm. hospice and things like that so I was delivering medication then I moved a little bit then then the same owner actually had another retail pharmacy in Torrance which is the city that I grew up and then and I actually became a farm tech so pharmacy technicians. I did that for about six and a half years. Yeah, that was kind of the job that I have, so. Then what about after that? 
So during that time, so kind of a lot actually happened. So okay, two thousand two, I got saved. What happened? <laughs> so basically, I was really kind of going a darkest time of my life. Pretty much, I was still working, but at the same time, I was partying a lot every weekend, just going out clubbing and things like that. And then after our clubs, but at the same time, I was really. I would say lost and broken at yeah. the time. Yeah. And then and I still remember 2001, there was a lot going on emotionally, mentally, so, you know, but I was still trying to hide myself while I'm doing okay, you know, when I party. Yeah. Because that makes me feel like I'm doing okay, right? Yeah. So, still remember 2001, one of my best friends still right now, this is, he's my first friend that I met in America back in 91. So he got saved around when he was in 18 or 19 at a college campus. He got saved and he just became a radical Christian. So he actually tried to evangelize to all of us, all of our friends. And then I was one of those guys It's like, I know Jesus, don't talk to me about Jesus. I went to church when I was growing up type of thing. And then in 2001, he invited me to this church out in Orange County because this really famous pastor from Korea was actually in a conference and he's very well known so I actually decided to go so I, when I went to church that time or a conference I haven't been to church for a really long time so you know you kind of do the usual prayers like God thank you and so mm-hmm. give me a promotions and blah 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 do whatever you know I asked all that prayer so I thought I was doing a good job you know thinking that I'd done something yeah right? and then that night couple of the friends that went to conference together we uh, left the conference and we went to this um, one taco joint that was open late at 11 o'clock at night there were about four or five cars at the time there was about six of us I remember and after eating tacos when we came out like my car was the only car that was broken into all the cars were same so this guy I guess whoever you know Mm -hmm. broke my car into shattered the passenger side window and then took everything out of my car pretty much and stole everything pretty much so at that moment you know not knowing any of the spiritual warfare that might might have been happening at the time i basically said it's like god i went to church and this is what you give me and i just flipped my middle finger to god Mm -hmm. it's like you don't exist or you just simply don't care about me so that was a kind of the moment where I almost became an atheist. Mm. That year, 2001 to 2002, I would say that was probably the one of the darkest time of my life, pretty much. So, because I just really turned away from God, or even His existence. Yeah, I just party like crazy, a lot of crazy, and then like stuff were happening, like friends betrayal stuff was happening at the same time too. So I was emotionally going through a lot, but hiding behind my face, I'm just gonna party, whatever. Yeah. I still remember, so one of the nights, I mean, most of the nights on every weekend, I was just like, you know, party like crazy and I'll come home on a freeway, drunk. And um, like, I didn't feel like I was wanted to live. I was very suicidal. Mm. So I would drive about 80 to 100 miles per hour with my eyes closed, thinking that if someone hits my car, I'm going to die. Because yeah. I didn't have a guts to actually just hit something and just kill myself. Mm-hmm. So 
but I never did. Mm. I didn't die. So I started questioning again during those darkest time of my life. It's like, God, do you, are you really there? Like, mm -hmm. do you really exist or do you really care about me? So I started challenging him more and more. I was like, I'm gonna go party more. I'm gonna be more careless type of thing. And if you really exist, you're gonna look out for me, which was very funny. <laughs> so, yeah, so I started doing that. Because most of the, during the weekends, I'll wake up on Saturday morning, I got home, and I don't remember how I got home. So I started questioning more as if like, okay, so someone's maybe protecting me. I don't know who this is. Maybe this is God. Mm -hmm. So I started questioning more and more. I started challenging him more. If you really exist, you got to show yourself to me, pretty much. So that still the same thing. Drive on the freeway 100 miles per hour, all drunk and with my eyes closed and things like that. Yeah, I did that for, I don't know, quite a long time, a couple months, just questioning and searching and not knowing who I am and all that stuff. And then um, it was sometime in 2002, April 2002, I was driving home on a weekend on Friday. I was partying quite a bit, and then it might have been three in the morning probably. And then just two exits before I'm about to get off on the freeway, I got pulled over by um, Highway Patrol. Mm -hmm. And obviously I've been drinking. And then he goes like, so I pulled over and then um, I actually exited and I pulled over to this parking lot and then he actually looks at me and goes like, sir, have you been drinking? It's like, yes, I have. How many? It was like, uh, I don't know, five, four. And then, you know, my eyes are shot red and then like, I don't, I'm not slurring. slurring, all that stuff. And then he gets me out of the car. We do all this, te you know, testing. It's like, you're going to count 1,001, 1,002, whatever, right? And he gives me all the tests. And then while I'm doing it, I'm asking, it's like, what did you want me to do? Like, it's like, that's the funniest thing. He's like, well, stand on your feet, you do this. And I couldn't really stand. And he finally gets me to this, you know, like, can you blow on this thing? It's like, oh, gosh, this is really happening. So I blew. And then um, he took me to the police station, obviously. He didn't impound my car. He just had me left it there, thankfully. So I spent the night at the police station, got a DUI. I was still a member, and then I got out next day, and I was like, I gotta get, go pick up my car. And then the ta <laughs> called the taxi. There was not an Uber at the time. Yeah. The, we're talking 2002. Yeah. yeah. So taxi driver comes over, and then he goes like, oh, what were you doing in a police office, you know, station? It's like, oh, I got, I got pulled over by DUI. It's like, yeah, I could still smell your alcohol. <laughs> so anyway, funny <laughs> thing is, yeah. so taxi driver took me and I went to where my car was parked because I remember where, mm -hmm. where I exited. And I went there to the parking lot. I realized it was a church parking lot. Really? Yeah. I'm like, okay, that's weird. I'm like, what is this all about? So for about a week, I was really soul searching quite a bit because yeah. it's like, you know, getting a DUI, that's a kind of a that's big a deal. Major deal. Yeah. And then that wasn't my first one. That was my second one, actually. So I was like really hit the bottom of my life. And then um, I think the week later, if I remember correctly, it was on my birthday. I still wanted to party. So I had my friends over, we're at a bar where everyone's like partying. 
And the guy that I told you about who became Christian, who became a radical Christian, his name's Tony. He came, even though he didn't want to come and party, he still came because it was my birthday. And um, he was sitting next to me, we're like talking. And I still remember asking him, he goes out to this mountain area. There's like a prayer center that he used to go to. He used to go there just to pray on his own and fast and pray for, I don't know, a couple of days or weeks. And he would just spend time with God at, out there. And I knew he was in and out of that, you know, prayer center out up in the mountain. So I asked him, it's like, hey, Tony, like, hey, when was the last time you went there? It's like, oh, it's been about a couple months. I'm like, when are you going to go there again? He goes like, I don't know. Why? It's like, can you take me there? And he's just like, you could see that look on his eyes. like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go next weekend. Yeah, let's go, let's go. I'll take you. So he got very excited. So, So next weekend, so we go up in this prayer mountain, and I went to this place, and it's like a retreat center. And then later did I know this prayer center the retreat center was the owned by the church that my mom goes to i found out later so anyway we go to this paramount the the retreat center and then that night my friend's like you know plays a guitar it's like i didn't even know you play guitar and i still remember he was playing part of worship by matt redmond he was playing and then he led me to like bible study stuff and he's like wanting to pray with me and then nothing was clicking at the time that's so funny so and then that night there's a pastor and his wife and his son actually lives at this retreat center to kind of oversee the properties and things like that so he comes over at nighttime because he just finished the bible study with some group so we talked for a little bit and then we're we didn't talk about anything about bible or god or anything like that and then um, we did some personality tests and all this stuff and then finally i think our night ended around 2.30-ish, quite late. I went to bed at 3, and I had a dream. Hmm. In my dream, I was running. I was running as fast as I can because there was a thing where someone was chasing after me, and I thought I was going to die if I got caught. And I was really just running for my life, and I was like, it was so even fearful to look behind because I was so scared to death, pretty much. And I was running in fear, and I finally, I got to this place where there's a wall in front of me. And there was nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And this thing or someone, whatever that is, was right behind me. I, I, there was no way out. So what I did was that, what am I going to do? Like, I may, let me just die here. So what I thought of at the time was, like, I'm going to just run towards this wall. I'm going to hit as hard as I can. So I ran, hit the wall nothing happened and I was like just fearful my life right I did that for the second time nothing really happened and third time I remember if I would have think now I think it was the faith component because of I trusted something inside of me it's like I'm gonna really believe whatever this is and I'm gonna believe that something's gonna happen and I went ran towards the wall for the third time and I hit it and then walls just cracked. And within those cracks, all these lights were beaming out. Like just wow. beaming out. And I'm just like kind of looking at this thing. And within a couple of seconds, all the walls around me just shatters. 
and I'm surrounded completely with lights all around. Mm -hmm. And you know when you kind of think of, you go to the beach or mountain, you look at the sky, clear sky, because of your peripheral vision, you could see things around, but this time, everything was a light. There was no darkness. When you talk about in Revelation, because of the glory of God so bright, there was no shadows that could even contain. That was literally it. So I was completely surrounded with this light. It was so bright. I still remember it. It was so bright to the point where it was hard for me to even open my eyes. But at the same time, all I wanted to do was just gaze on that light because I felt just peaceful. I just felt eternal. And that's when I woke up from my dream. Mm. And I looked at the clock. It's 5.30 in the morning. I slept two and a half hours, pretty much. And I just felt refreshed. I don't know if that recharge. Mm -hmm. So it was on the mountain area. So I went on a hike for a little bit for 30 minutes, came back. And then around 6.30 or 7, pastor's wife woke up and she's like preparing a breakfast for us and things like that. And then after all of us actually had breakfast and then um, the pastor sits me down on his couch and then he's going through the Bible. He's like drawing stuff and he's drawing cross and then, you know, why Jesus came mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Then at the end, he just like, do you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I said, yeah. And then my friend, was, he was so happy. And I told him about the dream that I just had. And they were just like in awe. It's like, what did you have? Like, what kind of dream? Like, kind of crazy. So after that, that day, after I accepted the Lord, uh, giving my life to the Lord. We're driving back from the mountain. I still remember this was in April. It was still cold a little bit. And then my friend was driving and I rolled down the window and I put my hands out for the first, like not for the first time, but it's like I put my hands out the window and I could see the wind just going through my hand. And I just felt alive mm -hmm. for the first time in my life. I don't know if that kind of makes mm -hmm. sense, but it's like, wow, like, I'm alive because he lives inside of me now. And that's kind of the moment where I gave my life to the Lord. And then it took kind of a gradual steps in order for me to actually get back and things like that, going to church and think, you know, it took a little bit. And about three months after that, I think I was getting involved in the youth group, helping out youth. And I was really coming to the church and, you know, stopped pretty much everything at the time. So that's kind of how my walk got started. <laughs> mm. How did your life change after that? What did you start working other places, some other place? Yeah. Well, yeah, I was still working at the pharmacy at the time. Okay. And then about a year after I gave my life to the Lord, 2003, I was 25 at the time, I decided to go back to school, mm -hmm. college. It was like, I think I need to go back, do something. So I decided to go back, went back to another community college, start fresh. And then I still remember that when I decided to go back to school, and then the first day I had to go back to school, do all the registration and take a placement test and things like that. I woke up in the morning and then it was like a daily devotional Bible verse that kind of popped that I had on my calendar. Or like this book that I was going through can't remember exactly, but I still remember the verse. And I believe that was like the God talked to me for the first time through his word was the Proverbs 16.9. 16, 9, 
which says, a man plans courses in his life, in his heart, but it is the Lord who determines his steps. Mm -hmm. So I just knew, it's like, I think I'm on the right track. I think he's going to determine my step as I go. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school and started fresh. And then I remember that day, like, God, I, I want to give you five years of my life for the glory of you and then the testimony of your name so that I could finish school so that you would have all the glory because like I said I was like I was never into school I was never a good student yeah so I was able to do a community college for three years then I transferred to University Cal State Long Beach I got my business bachelor in business management yeah and I finished it and um, my parents were very surprised because uh, not that they don't really believe in me <laughs> but at the same time like they know how much I don't like school and yeah. the track record. Mm-hmm. The track record. And then, I don't think I have a wound. I got over it, but I remember when I was like 19, I went up to my mom. That's it. Well, I want to like go to community college and then go to transfer to UNLV and, you know, get my hotel management. And, you know, I want to be in this management thing. And I still remember my mom's response. And she goes, you? So for me to, when I was graduating, she kind of saw, it's like, oh my God, my son actually did it, you know? And um, I was 30 at the time. So yeah, that was a, quite of a testimony. So yeah, so I was working until 2006, I was working at the farm techs, but when I transferred to university, basically that's when I stopped working because I wanted to actually really focus in school for the next two years. So that's what I did. Uh, so 2008 was a quite a big year for me. Yeah, very big year. So because uh, I was turning 30 mm -hmm. and then uh, on my 30th birthday, I got baptized. Hmm. Yeah, because that's when Jesus got baptized. So I think I had a I don't think I had an infant baptism, honestly, cause, and I, I don't believe in it much. Yeah. I'm not going to get into that whole theological stuff, but I still remember my mom wanted to dedicate or wanted to me get baptized because her kind of the her theology or mindset at the time when I was young, I was four at the time. So she's like, my son needs to get baptized. My son needs to get baptized. So I still remember I was four and I got baptized by the pastor back in Korea. I still remember. And then he put a, it's not a full immersion, yeah. but he put a water in my head. The whole congregation was watching. And I still remember my little respondents like, oh, that's cold. <laughs> And the whole church laugh. I mean, I was like, hilarious. So, yeah, so I just realized it's like I never got baptized. I never made that commitment. So, yeah, when I turned 30 on my birthday, I got baptized. One of the pastors at our church, uh, so he, we went to the beach, and then he did a full immersion. So that was kind of a special. And then two months after that, I got filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that year... I graduated, so that 2008 was a kind of a very much a huge transition. A lot of big events happened, and kind of about stepping into this new kind of this, I guess, the journey that I was on. Yeah, and um, yeah, and then when I graduated, that I had to take a one summer course, and then I, and, um, I wanted to take a break for at least for three months because it's like I've been working I've been working and going to school I've been school full time like I just never had a time for myself like taking vacations and things like that 
So I decided I was going to take a three months of the time not to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, but to figure out who I am, first and foremost. It's like, who am I? Like, try to understand. So I decided to take a three months off. And then remember the first week when I was taking a time off, my dad has, he took me one of his friend's office. And his friend was a deacon in the church. He just look at him. He's got a lot of wisdom, just mm -hmm. super humble, just, you know, you could just talk to him for hours and hours, right? So he knew I graduated. And so he asked me, he's like, so what are you going to do now? And I'm like, well, I just took some time off just trying to figure out. So I just want to learn about who I am. And then um, he said, uh, yeah, that's good, really good. Like, you know, it's nice to actually take some time off. Hey, like during those time, why don't you go to a place like IHOP, International House of Prayer, or take a short-term mission to YWAM? I think it would be good for you. So as soon as he said IHOP, like everything just came inside of me. Yeah. And I've never been to this place. Only thing I knew about this place was there was a 24-7 prayer. And I didn't even know what that meant. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I got to go to this place. I got to go to this place. So about three weeks later, packed up my stuff and took, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't move there, but I went there for about five days, IHOP, and then literally got wrecked mm. in a very good way to understand who I am and sort of what I'm called to do at the same time. So yeah, that 2008 was a big transformation at the time. And then after coming back from IHOP, like worship and prayer, you know, this lifestyle of mm -hmm. people just dedicating it to the Lord, all that stuff kind of really sort of started making sense to me. Yeah. So I went up to my senior pastor and said, you know, he knew I went to IHOP and he's, you know, he's very open to it. And I talked to him about certain things. Like maybe I want to jump into ministry. I think this is where the Lord's calling me to do. And then uh, he basically said, "No, you need to go get a full-time job." That's what he said. Mm -hmm. He basically said, and one of his advice was that, "Well, you got some student loans that you need to take care of. So wouldn't you, wouldn't it be a lot better if you actually take care of all that stuff and you jump into ministry? Then you won't have any burden." Yeah. So it somehow made sense to me, but I wish he would have actually told me, he's like, oh, that junk, that's awesome. Like, you should jump into ministry. Yeah. So I actually took his advice and then that's went good. to go apply for a job. And then because I worked at a pharmacy, like I just, with my, you know, business management and my, you know, educations and yeah, working at a pharmacy, I knew all the industry, like insurance industry, because I dealt with so many insurance and things like that. So I started looking at all this healthcare companies and I found a job out in Glendale, was Cigna Healthcare at the time. So I applied and then within five days, I got a foreign interview. And then within a week, I went in for in-person interview and less than two weeks, I got a job. So I started working at a corporate job for a little bit. Not my dream job, yeah, but it was a nine to five. Brutal, just uh, commute was brutal. I mean, LA, come on, you had to drive yeah. through. Yeah. The 110, I mean, it's like driving on a freeway. I think I was commuting about 12 to 15 hours a week because of the traffic. It would normally take me about 30 minutes to get to the office, but it would take me about an hour, a little more than an hour. And driving back home was just brutal. So 
Yeah, so that's what I did after college for a little bit. But even when I was working at the corporate, it's this, the lifestyle of worship and prayer was just would not leave, would not leave my heart. It's still lingering in my head. And then what is that gonna look like? What if I jump in the ministry, full-time mission? What is that gonna look like? How do I do this? I have no clue mm -hmm. what that's all about. So I just kept praying until the Lord was releasing me out from a corporate job. And that was in 2010, so. And what'd you do? Like in uh, for full-time ministry once once you were released. Yeah, so basically, 2010 was the year that I've actually really decided that like I'm really gonna walk, you know transition out of my marketplace job and be in a full-time ministry or missions to heart to plant a house of prayer out in California, mm -hmm. under the city that I was born up, and um, I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know how to raise support or talk to people about all of this stuff and people didn't believe in me because most of the kind of the stereotypical missionary it's like when people go on a mission it's like oh it's overseas helping the orphans or building constructions and things like that but what are you doing you're praying and worshiping and you're gonna do this continuously it's like what is that gonna look like but i kind of had a lot of confirmation in my prayer time and then multiple multiple confirmation out of nowhere that I felt like I had to do this. So I stepped out in faith and then went to my boss and I basically told her, and then she knew I was a believer because uh, even when I was working at the corporate, I was like ministering to the people. I shared my testimony with my boss once. She saw me crying in my cubicle once and then she caught me. She's like, what are you doing? And then and that was the moment that God was like really touching my heart. Mm -hmm. And then I had to get up and share my testimony with her. I was, I was crazy. Mm -hmm. And then and I remember like a couple months before I was uh, giving her notice, like her grandma was passing away. So I actually like, I was with my boss for a monthly report meeting type of thing. And I knew she was going through a lot to take care of her dying grandma. Yeah. And I still remember, it was like, hey, can I just pray for you? You know? Yeah. She knew like what kind of person I was not just the, someone that actually does work, but this guy's like believes in God, you know? Yeah. So when I was actually giving her notice, I basically said, it's like, you know, I enjoy what I do here, but I got to do, I feel like what I'm called to do, and I don't think this is it. So she actually blessed me. To release That's me. cool. So, yeah, just transition out and not knowing what to do, or what am I supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> and went back to my pastor, senior pastor, and so we had a lunch, to, lunch or dinner together. And I basically told them, um, I was like, hey, I took your advice when you told me to get a full-time job. And I think my heart is still burning for a mission and you have to bless me because mm -hmm. I'm going this, towards this direction. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, John, totally bless you. Yeah, you could do it. But in fact, we actually have a board meeting tonight. So let me go talk to the board and then let me get their feedback. And then, yeah, you'll be approved as our missionary. Done. <laughs> So, and then and, uh, basically, and then that night he went to the board and all the board member knew me at the church pretty much. And I was actually nominated to be a, one of the board members at the church as a youngest board member. Yeah. But then the whole board member unanimously just said, okay, we agree, Jones our missionary now. So yeah, I got proved. And then, um, yeah, even if after I got proved, all the validation and acknowledgement is still good, but 
I still have didn't have the things that I wanted or what I wanted in my heart to do because there was no hasopur, there was no building, there was no existing ministry at the church to kind of do all this stuff. And then thankfully, church gave me a little small office. I still remember maybe as small as this little, our patio area, maybe a five by seven office. And then that became my prayer room. My house of prayer for nine months. Mm. So I was in that little office for four to six hours a day, worshiping and praying, interceding, crying, complaining. Why the <laughs> heck did you bring me here, God? Like I say yes to it and this is what I get, you know, type of thing. I thought about giving up multiple times because it was just really rough. And then about nine months later being in that room, that's when our the House of Prayer in Torrance in California opened up. Mm. Yeah. Then I served that House of Prayer for about three years until 2014. Yeah. So those months when you were complaining, what were you expecting during that time? Because, I mean, you were at IHOP. Were you expecting all of a sudden just to something to explode yeah i mean some sort of miracle right yeah some building just pops out out of nowhere or i don't know someone just come in and hey i believe in what you do let's do it together type of thing you know i think the lord really had to humble me in a certain such a way and then i remember one day it was just really rough i mean there's like no money in the bank account and then i I still remember it's like there was like forty dollar in my bank account, and it was a time like you know even that time it was like God how am I gonna make it, and then God's like give it away, I'm mean, like I had to really trust Him like in that kind of a way, and then of course when you obey like He blesses you in a certain different way, so even when I gave that forty account that's what all that I have, and about ten days later that like tripled like in a certain different ways right. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those days that I was in my prayer room in my office and I was like complaining about like, did I even miss my calling? Did I even hear like God correctly? And I was like crying and complaining, just not in the mood. And then also the Lord led me to Hebrews 11, great chapter about, you know, faith components, right? And one of Yale's favorites. Yeah. One of Yale, uh, what he said? Yeah. So... Yeah, so basically, um, you know, faith is a substance what we hold for it and evidence what we do not see. And then later in verse, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it talks about all these, you know, the heroes of our faith, right? And I love the story of Noah, right? Because think about it, for how many, 120 years, I mean, it was just building. And, you know, what blew me away with Noah, it's because even he was like, he wasn't even thinking of us like in this moment right now you know thousands of years later i mean the nation of israel hasn't even born yet but because of this one man's faith he saved it all pretty much in a way right i mean kind of crazy story but it goes on you know in verse 13 it just talks about these people didn't receive the wheel with their promise but they welcomed it in the distance they become a foreigners and foreigners and the strangers of the earth and that was the part that really blew me away because it's like these people really weren't doing it for rewards. 
they were just obeying what the Lord has told them to do. And I, that's when I saw myself where it really doesn't matter if there's a house of prayer or big ministry or platform, whatever that it might look like. It doesn't matter. That's not what I'm chasing after. As long as I'm faithful and what I'm called to do, what he asked me to do in my assignments, and even if nothing happens in my lifetime, but as long as I pave that way, and then when I'm on my deathbed or when I'm dead, and I look back and there's a generation behind me walking on the path that I paved, then I've done my job. Yeah. So that was the probably the day that I really encouraged my faith and my heart again, because uh, you always kind of look for this big platform or something miraculously to happen where, oh, there's a God, like it's happening. It's like, no, it's like he's all around. Mm -hmm. And then he works in very mysterious way. And then he works in very small things that we don't even recognize. As long as we're faithful in that regard, a little small thing, that's kind of all that matters. So yeah, that's, kind of forgot the question but that's yeah. that was the day yeah. that it, I sort of kind of made that determination again to kind of walk and just be faithful of what I'm called to do so so how long were you at the Torrance House of Prayer three years okay yeah we opened in uh, April 30th 2011 and then we um, um, closed it down in 2014 April in 2014 so we actually kind of decided to, when we opened up, we were going from 20 hours a week mm -hmm. in worship and prayer. And then by the time we we're going, closing, we we're up to about 46 hours a week. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, quite a big things that we're doing in terms of prayer, worship and prayer. And then we we're actually like connecting with some of the local churches and some other guests from other churches were coming visiting us. And a lot, a lot of the stuff were happening. But we actually, two months before we decided to close our house of prayer down, we we're feeling like the Lord was actually taking a season of rest and just to wait on Him. And that's kind of what we did. And then that kind of led to shutting our house of prayer down. Yeah. And then where'd you go after that? For 2014, after transitioning out, I was helping a couple different uh, local ministries. And then I was helping another local church out in LA kind of serving them, but I was kind of wandering around, not really sure. And I actually went back to go get my master's. <laughs> so talk about not really into school. Yeah. And now I'm like going into my master's. So I found an online school that I could actually get into. So enroll myself to, for my master's program. So it's 2015, I was doing my master's. In what? Christian ministry. Emphasis on le leadership. Okay, we're at through Liberty okay. University. So, yeah, and then early in 2015, and Yale, obviously Yale and I've been reconnecting. So we've been friends for about almost 11 years now. So we've known each other even before this time. Like I mean, we're you know still meeting up, having lunch together, and you know we weren't smoking cigars at the time because uh, I wasn't a cigar smoker at the time. Maybe he was, but... <laughs> he was. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So, yeah, 2015, he was a part of this another um, kind of a big event that he was working on in 2016. Yep. So him and I were kind of working. I was helping him and serving him and serving the other ministry that he was part of. So we started reconnecting at the time and going back and forth. So unofficially, so we're just kind of meeting up together. 
um, serving other ministries and events. And then 2016, yeah, January of 2016, I went out to Vietnam for the first time, thinking that it was going to be a short-term mission trip. That's kind of the another beginning of my another life stage that was actually happening yeah. at the time. So, yeah, you ended up staying there for a little bit longer. Yeah, in 2017. So 2016, a little before that, there was a lady at our church that we went to church together. She's like my aunt to me, so I call her Aunt Sue. And then she was part of our house of prayer that I was co-leading at the time. So she served at our house of prayer. So she went to Vietnam in 2013, I believe, for her job. So she had a job in America and then her company sent her out. So she actually was working in Vietnam as a GM. And then she like took this company to a whole nother level. I mean, she had 500 employees underneath her. I mean, she was managing the whole thing. So she went out to Vietnam and she's been bugging me about coming out there. Basically, she's like, can you come out? Can you come out? You know, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I do the little Christian though. I'll pray about it. Yeah, but I did pray about it, but I just don't haven't felt led to go. And a little before 2016, around sometime around you know July of 2015, she came out to LA to kind of reconnect with some people, and um, she met up with me and she gave me all these updates about what's going on in Vietnam through what she's doing. And at the end, she said, "Can you come out? I need help." Mm. So I was like, "This was like third or fourth time she was asking me." I was like, "Okay, I'll come out." like answer to her that I was going to go out and then in, in my head I was like you know even though I've been in the ministry and a mission field I never thought about being overseas and you know helping out other stuff but so I decided to go out in January yeah, in January of 2016 for the first time and I was there for two weeks a lot happened mm-hmm. God really well people ask me it's like why Vietnam I just basically said, I don't think I'm necessarily called to Vietnam, but I just have a heart for them. But the Lord wrecked my heart for the nations through people in Vietnam. Ooh, yeah. So after that trip, the Lord was giving me a bigger views in terms of what kingdom advancement and things like that. and the stuff that what the Lord was doing all throughout the nation, and it wasn't just happening here in Soul Ground in, in California where I was living at the time. So, yeah, so I just keep going back. I just keep going back and... You've been adopted I've been Vietnam. adopted. <laughs> you have a second family in Vietnam. I, I have a second family, so... Talk about that. Yeah, so that's kind of a huge story. So first trip in Vietnam, on the very end of the trip, I went to this church in the very south of Vietnam, kind of country area. And I went out there for about four or five days, if I remember correctly. And then um, the pastor there was like hosting me a lot. And he's such a humble man. I just love seeing him. And I remember the first night I preached, I preached the message and I was coming down from the stage and I invited people to minister to the Lord. I wasn't really praying for people, but I just invited them, hey, let's just worship and minister to the Lord. And I still remember, and I, every time I talk and think about this, it just, yeah, I get a little, I get very emotional. 
I was coming down from the stage and this pastor at this church, he was on his knee with his eyes closed and he's crying out to the Lord. And then in that moment, I just really saw this um, John 15 reality where it's you're the vine, I'm the branch. If I let go, I literally die. I'm gonna have to remain in you, God. And this is the only way I could live. I just really saw that moment. And I looked at this pastor, it's like, what do I got to offer this pastor who has literally just died to himself? And here's a guy, Korean American guy from America, you know, trying to teach him about certain prayer or, you know, Christian lives and things like that. Like, what do I got to offer to this man? You know, like, I, I have nothing. And I still remember that moment. So as the day progressed, I was like teaching and training some people. At the end of this training, on a fourth or fifth day, it's getting a little rainy here. So fourth or fifth day, I still, I was training with their church staff. And then at the end of the training, the pastor pulls me aside and through a translator, he basically said, I have to go to another town. So I won't be able to stay with you when you finish your training and leave here today. So I just want to say bye to you. And then I want you to come to my house and I want, want you to lay your hands on me and to pray for me. And I'm like thinking in my head, like, what am I praying for you about? Like, you got to pray for me. Like you have something more than I have, right? Anyway, so I'll go to his house. His house is like right next to the church. And then um, him and his wife are like standing and we, I'm praying for him and then just, presence of God just falls on us and I'm like crying and then at the end of the prayer I opened my eyes I looked at him dead in the eye and I said tears like just coming out of my eyes and I said I have nothing I have nothing to offer to you and I don't know what happened but I just got on my knees and I said you're my dad that's all I said and he threw his arms around me and it hugged me and he's like weeping and then kind of in a culture in vietnam they're not very affectionate people and you kind of somehow know that a lot of asian people they're not really affectionate people so for him to actually really like hug me that's yeah. a big thing that he did we we're like just crying and just you know just lots of tears coming out of my you know both of our eyes and his wife is crying, my translator is crying, and everyone's crying. And it wasn't one of those things when he took me in as his son, it wasn't one of those things It's like, oh yeah, I'm your spiritual dad now, like you listen to me, or like you take my advice from now. That's not what he did. He basically went to his own dad, who's living at the house, and say, Jung is, is your grandson now. <laughs> you have another son now. And he went to his own son, uh, the oldest son in the family, and said, Jung is your older brother now. He's one of us. So I became a family to them. So when I go to this church, the whole congregation doesn't know me as this pastor, like what they call, right? Mm -hmm. They don't look at me as a pastor. It's like, oh, he's, he's their son. Yeah. So that's what really got me about in Vietnam, the God gave me a family. And one thing the Lord really reminded me of, it's about, it's the sonship. Mm. The sonship that we have in the kingdom of God. I feel like the Lord was reminding me, you walk in my sonship, uh, and I'll put a family around you. 
So I feel like everywhere I go, like I just, as long as I remember, like I am a child of God and understand that sonship and the kingdom, then there's a family all around the world, everywhere I go. And I feel like a lot of the places that I go, I always have some sort of spiritual family that they kind of take me in. So, and that's kind of why, why I would say it started in Vietnam. And through that, I have a heart for the nations. Now, this is something we talked about last night at the underground when we were having cigars. Vietnam is a communist country. Yeah. And Christianity in communist countries is not thought of very well. In fact, it's very persecuted in most communist countries. Right. So kind of talk about that so that we listeners can kind of understand what the situation there is like for the Christians, for the pastors, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I would say um, maybe over the couple of years that it's been pretty lenient that the government has been. But I still remember talking to some of the pastors that most of them, they get locked up. You know, they go to prison. And then, uh, you know, especially like foreigners like myself coming from America, it's illegal for me to preach or teach the Bible. So I could literally get caught. And I still remember the first time going out to Vietnam and then I'm, I went to this northern part of the Vietnam on my second day, third day. Yeah. And then um, about 75 underground church leaders showed up to this meeting. I mean, this is me, first time on an overseas mission, first time preaching to leaders. I mean, I thought I was going out there meet about three to five pastors just for a meeting and just kind of do the relational building and to kind of understand like what they need and what we can kind of help, you know, things like that. And 75 leaders showed up to this meeting. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I remember the deacon of the church, this is like 10 minutes before um, preaching, I'm about to go on a stage. He comes up to me and he said, um, this is strictly uh, pastors and leaders meeting we know everyone who's in here and we're going to watch the door make sure no spies no police officer actually comes into this building but if anything happens go behind the stage where the door is don't come out until we tell you so i'm like thanks a lot (laughs) yeah yeah so it was kind of i feel like i was getting serious and nothing really happened that day thankfully but um that's kind of how strict it is out there. You just have to be careful. I don't like taking pictures with Vietnamese people and putting on a social media. Yeah. Because uh, I don't want to be this public figure that yeah. the kind of people know about. And I feel like um, we're kind of the mission movement. I feel like it's been happening. I think I mentioned this last time was that back in the 90s when uh, you know, a lot of the manufacturing business was opening up in China, you know, a lot of import and export that was actually happening. The China actually eventually had to start opening up a little more. And I feel like that's when a lot of the movements started happening at the same time. But over the last couple of years, a lot of the labor stuff, it's been expensive out in China. Manufacturer business has moved out from China and they started planning their manufacturer business out in Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. So if you see some of the clothing that it's made, it's not really made in China these days. I wouldn't say all of them, but most of them, it's made out in Vietnam or, you know, Malaysia or Indonesia and other places. 
when that actually happens, the country starts to eventually have to open up for other things, tourism and other things, and business, you know, visas and things like that. And I feel like this is kind of the open window that we have in Vietnam because the country actually started opening up more and more. That's kind of the opportunity that I'm actually seeing out of Vietnam. So, yeah, that's somewhat an understanding for the kind of the viewers about the context of the communism and yeah. Christianities and things like that. Persecution is still happening in Vietnam. And then I helped plan a couple of underground churches out there with the young people. And then one of the past, well, actually two groups, one of them we actually helped to find a building and within three months they got raided. And then another pastor that actually helped him plan, he just got arrested last year mm -hmm. in May during, during the COVID lockdown that happened. And him and his five other leaders got interrogated for about six hours. All their Bibles and books and CDs been taken away. And then the government told them, it's like, you can't do any more church meetings anymore. Mm -hmm. So he's on the list. Yeah. So. Jung Kim, yeah. let's get to rapid fire questions. <laughs> hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years. So I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a holy smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire here. How's that stick treating you? Oh, it's great. Tatuaje. Tatuaje. Where did you first try cigars? When? Yeah. Almost four years ago, 2017. July of 2017 in San Francisco. And guess who I was with? Yale and Kim. Yale Kim and Kim Hiramine. And Dion Elmore, if I remember correctly. Yeah. You ever do pipe? Nope. What's the most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Ooh. I guess it was like Cohiba Sigla 6. Yeah. I don't know how much Cohiba Sigla costs these days, but I would say that, that's probably it. Best dollar for dollar cigar you get? Mmm. That's a really hard question. 
I mean, I think I, earlier I was smoking a um, Rocky Patel 1992 vintage, the Rocky Patel second that I got from Cigar Bid. And it's like, I don't know, in a bundle of 25, you could get it for a pretty cheap price. So I think that's still good. Seconds are usually yeah. really good value sticks. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Cigar International, because it's close to my place. A couple websites, Cigar Bid, obviously. And then um, JR Cigar. And then there's one other place out in Pennsylvania, or Philadelphia, if I remember correctly. It's called Atlantic Cigar. It's a kind of a warehouse, so you, there's no retail, so you could always have to order online. And that's where I got my Tatuai Havana Casadores, because they carry it. Yeah. So that's another place that I go to. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Mm. It's hard to say. I really enjoy it. The one that Arnie just had, the Yamazaki 12. Uh, Japanese PPP, whiskey. Yeah, Japanese whiskey. I've been really enjoying that Bardstown. That's been really good. So, uh. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Like what? In, what? What's interesting? Are we talking about? <laughs> Whatever that word means to you. I don't know. That's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of, I would say, fascinating people. I mean, that's kind of one thing about Holy Smokes is that you get to meet these people that you've never met or that you knew but you didn't really know, and you get to hear some stories. Like even today, like Arnie was like sharing with the, about his dad and his grandpa and all this stuff. It's like it's very fascinating. So I would say that's interesting, but it's fascinating. But uh, if you're looking at it interesting as a kind of a little bad way, I mean, there are some interesting people out there, uh, which I can't really mention, so. <laughs> Best place you ever smoked? Oh man, it's hard to say, because, uh, oh yeah, so Yale and I, we actually went to Hawaii two months ago. I mean, Hawaii right now, it's very empty right now so one day we just started just driving and then we found this one spot i have to kind of look it on my phone to kind of where exactly it's at but this beach was like there was no one there literally and it had a little palm tree up there so we actually set up a beach chair underneath the shade and we just sat there for i don't know three and a half four hours we just sat there and smoked so just kind of <laughs> decompress and that's one of my best spots Recently, I would say, yeah. Marvel or DC? Marvel. Do you have a favorite superhero? I don't know. I mean, I guess it's every man's dream to, like, you know, look at Iron Man, because Tony Stark pretty much has everything. So, I mean, Iron Man, it's like, he's not a superhero, but he's a human that actually turned into a, you know, this flying <laughs> machine. <laughs> so... <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek? Neither. Sorry. No worries. Sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. Very sorry. I'm not, yeah. I'll watch them, but I'm just not a huge fan. Favorite food? Oh, hard to say that. So, because I'm a big foodie. So, it's like if you would ask me, it's like, what's your favorite type of dish? It's like really hard to say. But, you know, since I've been in and out of Vietnam, I love Vietnamese noodle. Because I'm Korean, I love Korean food. So, yeah, it's hard to say. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Dogs. Nickname, growing up or in college? Never had one. Huh. So, but um, I think around 2014, I was kind of like 
naming myself as a spicy Arturo. What are you laughing? Only because it's like, you know when you go to a restaurant or like Starbucks or anywhere you go, it's like, oh, can I have a name for your order, right? And I always joke around, it's like, Arturo. Like, that's my name, right? <laughs> I remember one time I went to Chick-fil-A as a joke, and then they're like, oh, can I have your name for your order? I say, oh, Arturo, right? <laughs> and then when they're calling my name for order, it's like, oh, yeah, I have an order for Arthur. <laughs> and all my friends are like looking at me, like, Arthur, right? And then what happened was that I went to this Mediterranean place, and then I said, they asked me, the like, can I have your name for your order? And I said, oh, Arturo. And then somehow on a receipt, it showed up as a spicy Arturo. I still have it on my phone. I'll show it to you later with the picture. So since that time, it's like every time I cook something, if I post it on Instagram, I just have a hashtag of spicy Arturo because I just think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? I love shopping. I have a lot of jeans. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've got most of it, but I remember like, you know, remember those like Facebook questions about 33 questions about you or certain things. And then those one other unique questions that kind of talked about. I mentioned one time, I don't have that many these day, but uh, yeah. once I think I had 33 jeans. <laughs> yeah, I love jeans, so yeah. I have another unusual fact. Well, I have another unusual fact. Okay. So, I don't have a great voice like Arnie does, but I do have a pretty deep voice when I do speak. And I actually had this voice since I was four. What? Yeah. My voice was this deep ever since I was this young. So, like, yeah, my dad's friends used to joke around. It's like, yeah, I still remember you growing up. You're like crying. You'd be like, because you had this really deep voice. So that's one of the unique things that people really don't know about. So. That's funny. Yeah. Well, your mom and Yale's mom, they know each other from back in Korea. Uh, I Even say, though you guys aren't related, at yeah, least directly. Yeah, I wouldn't say back in Korea, but they went to same school. In the 90s, they had this the Graduate Alumni Association out in America, and that's where they met in the 90s, when Yale and I, okay. we, we didn't even know each other. Yeah. And then we just found that out last year, that my mom and Yale mom knew each other pretty well. And <laughs> how did they know each other? So, I mean, how did they find that? How did you guys find that out? Yeah, so we're actually at a lunch meeting one time. So it was Yale's mom was visiting Texas, so I was meeting Yale's mom and Yale. So we're having lunch together. And I knew uh, Yale's mom went to this school that my mom went to back in Korea. So I asked her, it's like, oh, so you went to such such school? And she's like, oh yeah, like, and I got a nursing degree, which I didn't know. I was like, oh, my mom got a nursing degree at, at that university. And then this university is like one of the top universities in Korea. So I was like, oh, she did. It's like, what's her name? And I Yale's mom, my mom's name, and she looks at me. She's like, "Wait, didn't your parents own like a restaurant out in Koreatown?" It's like, "Yeah, I know your mom. Like we were very close." So, and I asked her Yale's mom's name. So I called my mom at the while we're having lunch, and I called my mom, and I'm like, "Mom, do you know this lady so and so?" And she goes like, "Yeah, didn't she have a real estate business out in Fullerton?" 
Like that's how like deep each other is. Like, and she, my mom's like, oh, what is she up to these days? She's sitting right in front of me right now. So I gave her the phone, and they started talking. Like I was like, and then both yelled. I was looking at each other. I was like, what is going on? This is crazy. <laughs> All right, final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you? And how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Well, I think personally, I think I mentioned it briefly a little bit about when Arnie was asking about my family. Basically, um, like my dad and I were pretty close. It's not like I have any resentment towards him, anything like that. But uh, I think for years ago, him and I were just kind of talking in a way that's like, hey, how's it going? Hey, good. That's kind of about it. But we'll have dinner together and whatnot. But it was on my 40th birthday, I still remember, after family dinner, I went back to my parents' place, and then and I told my dad, it's like, Dad, on my birthday, there's just something I want to do with you. He's like, what is it? So I pulled out a cigar, and he just burst out in this lab. He was like, oh my God, I haven't had cigars for years. So we, uh, we went out at the balcony area, and we had cigars together, and that kind of sort of brought us closer together. So, and that would I don't think would have happened if there was, wasn't a Holy Smokes or if I had a cigar. And then, you know, other things personally, it's that, um, you know, you get to meet this great people. Like, I mean, I have a friend out in Houston that I met the Holy Smokes that, that we keep in touch with and a lot of the other people around and somewhere in Kansas City, a lot here in Dallas and Colorado Springs and even Orlando. And you get to hear about this people's fascinating stories and that really encourages and you know how this people are willing to just walk with you in any stage of life and I think that's pretty fascinating and then, you know I love all this uh, organized force men's group at churches there's nothing wrong with that but it's like you know guys are not going to show up for a coffee meeting on a Saturday unless they're doing something together. I mean, you have to do something in order for you to bond together. I think that's how typically all men are, whether you're like fishing or golfing or surfing, whatever the activity you do, you kind of connect in that certain ways. And, you know, guys won't just show up on a Saturday. It's like, oh, we're gonna have a tea time. It's like, ooh, we're not gonna do that. But you put a cigar in front of them. Oh yeah, I'll show, I'll show up a cigar. So I think it's soda, you sort of smoke a cigar, there's natural bond that kind of happens, I think. So I think that's been helping me in, to connect with men in that regard. So, and I'm not bashing like church men's group at all. I mean, it's very important, mm -hmm. but I think in a very, um, in my personal journey, I think it, that's been helping me in a very profound way, I guess. Yeah. 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 All right, if you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Can't name Jesus, yes. Yeah, so I thought about this question last night when I was driving back from underground. Yeah, I think the first person would be King David. I don't know if he was a cigar guy, but I would ask him, it's like, yeah, when you're dancing naked, what were you thinking, honestly, right? Or when you're writing all these psalms, I mean, complaining and crying out to the Lord, like, what were you actually thinking about all this stuff, you know? And then I think the second person would be Apostle Paul, obviously. I have a lot of questions. And then the third person that I, have, I was like, I couldn't really think of the person, but one of the people that I thought of, it's Michael Jordan. 
Ooh, yeah. big cigar guy. I think that's the first time anyone's mentioned Michael Jordan on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, so after watching that last dance on Netflix, I mean, he had his coiva every practice he showed up. I mean, this guy. It's like, how do you smoke a cigar and run like that, you know? And just his competitiveness and determinations. And if you watch the actual story of the Michael Jordan at Last Dance, it's a, there was a lot of the father and the son thing, mm-hmm. the kind of the theme, you know? And then his father was like there for him all the time. And when his father passed away, like he had a really difficult time because he was, just wasn't there. But I would love to kind of, you know, hear his story and smoke a cigar and then, I don't know, just, he seems just like a cool dude. And I think no matter what people said, there's no other person like Michael Jordan in the basketball. I mean, I don't care if it's Kobe or LeBron, like a lot of people say, you know, they're bitter, but I think there's no one at the moment that who could actually surpass MJ. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, final question. If we're meeting one year from today, and I got a bottle of that Japanese whiskey, and we're cracking it open. What are we celebrating? Oh, man. That's hard. Well, I'm single, never been married. Maybe by next year, it'll be my wedding celebration or engagement. Hopefully, it may happen, it may not, but I hope that it's a celebration for that. So, Jung Kim, <laughs> I hope to be celebrating with you. <laughs> Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.